This is the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast, available on iTunes, Spotify and atptour.com. Welcome back to Paris, where we're at the halfway point of Roland Garros. There have been some great matches played up to this point, which I should highlight is Saturday morning when we are recording the podcast. Everybody's COVID test is up to date and The Roof has had an almost daily workout. My name's Gigi Salmon and I'm very happy to be sat in the Radio Roland Garros offices with two friends and colleagues from World Number no. 5 and now multimedia star, Daniela Hansikova, and broadcaster, shall we say extraordinaire, Marcus Buckland? Definitely, we should say extraordinaire. <laughs> yeah, definitely yeah, agree with that. Edward. Good, good and plenty to, more besides. Good way to start. Okay, <laughs> you, you can carry on if you Now, we're almost at the end of week one. So how has it been for you guys, this a Grand Slam in a pandemic halfway through? What stood out for you? What have you enjoyed? What's been different? It's been great. I don't know about you guys, but uh, I've been really enjoying it, even though the weather has been so-so. But it's it's just different. Uh, Paris in autumn, I, I love it. And the fact that I get to work with you guys, it just doesn't get better. Yeah, it's strange. And on that first afternoon, the Sunday afternoon, I did go and sit and shiver and watch Dan Evans lose in five sets to Kane Shikori. And I was thinking... Being absolutely honest, is this going to work? But then as the week has progressed, I felt, and it's a, it's a word I don't like to use, but a degree of privilege to be here because it's so unusual. It feels special to wander around the amazing, is it 12, 14 hectares of the Roland Garros site? And there have also been some fascinating matches. The French players on Friday suddenly gave the locals an awful lot to shout about. We've had the upsets that we expected. The big guns certainly on the men's side of things, uh, are moving in a very ominous direction. So I think, I think it's been great so far, and I'm very excited about week number two. Daniela, you won the mixed doubles title here in 2005. Is there something extra special walking back through these gates as a Grand Slam champion? Uh, there is, uh, but not only as a Grand Slam champion, but an, anytime you walk through the Grand Slam gates, uh, it just doesn't get better than that. No matter whether it's Paris, London, New York, or Melbourne, it's just uh, those you know those times during the year that you work for. Um, you know, it's a uh, it's on your mind ever since you pick up the racket. So being able to come back uh, once again is just so special. And as Marcus was saying, you know, just uh, being able to watch live tennis in these days and actually having fans around. We saw that yesterday when uh, both Ugo and Caroline won. I mean, how how much energy and atmosphere there was, uh, even though 1,000 fans, it definitely felt like 10,000. Do you know, one of the other things I've enjoyed as well, having been with Danny on a couple of occasions, of course, you came here for so m- how many years as a player? Was it 15, something like that? Uh, first time I came was 1998. Oh, so 20, 22 years now. 22 years. <laughs> and, and she took me a couple of nights ago to this wonderful Italian restaurant <laughs> where as Is a Is that player, when I was still working? You were out at dinner, yeah. right? I, I made sure you were okay. It was a bit of a late night finish. I think I might be in the 1208 finish, but we were okay. And um, we met up with the manager of the restaurant who was still there. And it was also the same restaurant that Guga Querton went to every single night sat at the same table and had the same meal every day until extraordinarily the night before one of his finals when the restaurant manager said he chose a seafood risotto and there was panic wasn't there in the kitchens because if something went wrong with the seafood risotto 
and he started throwing up on court the next day, that restaurant was not going to get a very good reputation. Yeah, I think the the cook uh, literally didn't sleep all night <laughs> until the finals <laughs> was finished because, yeah, they were surprised. You know, Guga liked his uh, habits, just like we all do, not too extreme, where I wouldn't choose every single night the same restaurant. I would do, you know, match day a different one and a day off, um, you know, another place. So at least a change up in that way. But Guga went for the same same restaurant, same food for, uh, what, 15, 16 nights in a row. Mm-hmm. So I want to ask, when you went back there with Marcus, did you have something similar, the same thing that you had when you went there as a player? <laughs> well, actually, I think uh, the owner remembered what I used to order, but definitely, you know, the times has changed and I'm not playing that much. I'm not wasting so much energy anymore. So I have to be a little bit careful what I take for dinner. <laughs> I mean, to me, it was the wrong way around. I was assuming now that she's not playing, that she could indulge a little bit because as a player, she always had a creme brulee. Uh, tiramisu. Well, tiramisu, uh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> How did I get that? Another <laughs> unforced error button. Tiramisu every night. I was thinking, oh, Danny's now working very hard, but you can enjoy yourself. But actually, every time I come down from our rooms on the fourth floor in the lift, and there's the gym just by the lift, she's in there like morning, noon, and night. I, I reckon you're working out more now and certainly eating more healthily now than you were as a top player. Well, I wouldn't say I'm working out more now. There's no way. I mean, I'm doing Seems like to one... Seems to me. I mean, two hours at a time. You have... Yeah, it's but brutal. When you think about it, two hours of my day, back in the day, there was like one quarter of my training session because after two hours of fitness, then there comes the tennis, lunch, and then you repeat the same thing in the afternoon. So uh, literally, I feel like I'm not doing anything, even though I'm squeezing in one one workout in the morning. That's pretty much it. So even with the with the food, I think all the players feel the difference when they retire that because we spend so much energy out there playing matches, training, that you can pretty much eat anything. But it's when you retire, it's like, oh, well, hold on a second. <laughs> I'm not going to be out there for six, seven hours training, so I better watch out. And Marcus is using this as an excuse not to go to the gym because in the new normal that we live in, one of the things in the hotel is one person in the gym, mm. that's it. And, and it's not a very big gym. It's quite. So I think Marcus times it because he comes and he said, oh, well, oh, Danny was in the gym again today, so I couldn't go. So when he left last night, we said, maybe Marcus goes to the gym tonight. And he said, well, I might have a glass of wine instead. And I don't, I don't think you ever you know, made like, it I'm to the gym. I'm now paying some random bloke to go and stand in the gym so it looks as though it's full. And then I've got <laughs> a genuine excuse not to go in there. But Danny did force me in on one occasion. I think I quite impressed her with a few of my little sort of Yeah, yeah I have to say I was and... very impressed by the push-ups of Marcus. Yeah. Um, and it was a really tense workout. So, yes, we must give him a lot of credit because he did make a appearance and not only once. And he's been suffering ever since. And I'm not <laughs> sure he's going to be going back again. But Marcus, this is your first time. I don't know if it's your first time back in Paris, but it's your first time back in Roland Garros for quite a few years. So what are the main differences you've noticed being back here? Well, it's, it's completely transformed. I mean, to be honest with you, the last time I worked on Roland Garros was I think 1997 Wow! so that is a long time and, and I, I actually my memory's pretty awful at the best of times I can't remember the only thing I do really vividly remember from that last final I covered in 1997 and Richard Evans friend of mine BBC's tennis correspondent in those days I do remember that for half an hour of the men's final that afternoon he had the wrong headphones on and the producer was desperately trying to talk to Richard and wondering why he was not responding. And after about half an hour, I suddenly realized that his headphones were just dangling. The end of them were dangling on the floor. They were not plugged into the mixer. And that <laughs> was why he was not responding to any instructions <laughs> at all to go to another match or whatever it was. So I had to surreptitiously go into the commentary booth and just plug his headphones back in. Uh, and that's the outstanding memory I have. 
other than this was the Martina Hingis era, she just burst onto the scene and there was this incredible aura about this, what, 16, 17-year-old who you knew very well, of course. It's inter Danny. interesting you say Martina because, first of all, she just had a birthday yesterday, 40 years old. I was like, oh my God, where did the time go? And she is the first person I remember seeing in the locker room. And I was like, oh my God, I've made it because I was playing the juniors. And one of the things as a junior playing the Grand Slams is that you start, suddenly start to be close to your stars, your idols. And, you you know, they're still such a long way away because you are playing completely different competition. But at least you see they are there, that it's for real. And it gives you so much more motivation to, to work even harder to hopefully, you know, play against them one day. But I do remember Martina was the very first person. And uh, obviously we speak the same language. And uh, I think it was my mom that came up to Melanie, her mom, and kind of we introduced each other. And I, have, I mean, I was so nervous and uh, it was just one of those really cool moments to be able to meet her. And did you become very good friends? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I have to say Martina has been uh, such an incredible help throughout my career. Basically, the first few few years she really guided me through. Uh, we practiced a lot together and that was one of the moments again that I will never forget. First practice session with her was actually the year I won Indian Wells, the very first day. Um, we we started to hit, and I just realized the intensity, the perfectionism. I mean, I I think she hardly made any mistakes, and I just realized that that was the level I needed to be at. And then two weeks later, we were playing in the final. So it's it was really like all in a dream. And he's, she's been always pushing me incredibly hard just to believe in myself and uh, become better and better. So hang on, when you beat her in the final, she had every justification then to go up to you and say, hey. I took you under my wing, I showed you how to practice, I showed you everything you should do, and this is how you repay me. Yeah, she was kind of, I mean, we, we had some interesting chats uh, in the locker room afterwards, not only that year, but then uh, the second time I won Indian was I played her in the quarters again, won again, same score, and after the match in the locker room, she goes like, you are, I don't know if I can say it, but you are just so stupid. I'm like, excuse me? <laughs> and she's like, do you realize how well you play? Like, how on earth are you not winning more of these tournaments? I'm like, um, okay. And then after I won, right away she texted me like, you see, I just need to <laughs> be a little bit more aggressive towards you and this is what you can do. So she was always like expecting a lot uh, from myself. And uh, also, you know, we got to play a little bit of doubles together. And yeah, she's been just such a great inspiration. Now, a big difference for both of you for when you were here in the year you think you kind of remember and when from <laughs> Danny started playing is we have a roof this year. And if ever a roof was needed at a Grand Slam, a Grand Slam in late September, October, October, Marcus, it has been an absolute joy to have this roof. Yes, it's been essential. I don't like to think where we would be sitting here now if we did not have that the roof. Second round of quiz. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's an amazing cathedral-like arena. I, I sat there on Friday to watch Simona Halep in what I thought was going to be a really tough match against Amanda Anisimova, who of course beat her in the quarterfinals last year when well, it lasted 54 minutes of course Halep committed only seven unforced errors and this is over 32 in return so I was marveling at the efficiency of Halep but also looking at that incredible roof that when it does open it, it opens so smoothly in about 10 minutes but when it's closed and when the rain was hammering down there was this incredible intense atmosphere plus of course the noise of the crowd when the French when, when Caroline Garcia in particular began that amazing comeback even a thousand people created a fantastic noise. So huge tick for Philippe Chatteret. Uh, Simone Mathieu Court is really special as well in the garden-like area. And I also sat for a, a little while on Suzanne 
Longland. And all three of those courts are, I think, really special. And then, of course, you've got all the, the lovely little surroundings to keep yourself occupied as well. I think that's a big difference this year because we only have a thousand fans. It does give us, if we get a chance, the opportunity to go and sit on these courts. Normally you're fighting through people or it can take so long to get from Susan Longland to Simone Mathieu in the middle of the botanical gardens because you're sort of fighting your way through people. But Danny, there'd be more of those moments. Normally they would come before the gates open in the morning and you'd sneak in and just have a quiet moment. But that is one of the things we can do this year we can go and sit on these courts. You actually spent some time going behind the scenes and weren't you in the, the photographer's pit at some point? Yeah, I know. It's just so cool. I know we shouldn't be really saying it that uh, without the fans, it's just so easy to move around. And uh, as a player, you never have that opportunity. Wherever you go, you have to have the security and you can't really get a feel of what it's like to see Roland Garros from different places. And as you said, um, looking at the center court from the f kind of the camera, the photography, uh, plays was one of the coolest things ever because as a player, when you hit the ball down there, you always wonder like, what's going on there? Like, are there ball boys or uh, what's going on? Is there a little party and stuff? So it was really nice to be able to do that and just move, move around with all the changes that, that there's, there's been done and uh, and really being able to, to just soak up the atmosphere and have a quiet time for yourself. I also saw a nice picture of you at least pretending to sweep the courts. I thought you'd finally <laughs> found your true vocation in life? Well, actually, this is what uh, I'm used to do because back in the days in Slovakia, there was no other way around it. And actually, if you won a match, that's what you had to do, like kind of show the respect uh, to your opponents. So I used to do that a lot between the age like 12 and 16, uh, playing all those tournaments uh, back in Slovakia and just being so close to that court. Uh, I'm begging Fabrice to, to find a way how we can have a little hit on on the new court and hopefully with the, with the roof on because it's just so special. And when you are dead near, you know, being able to, to play out there, it's just, you know, wanna, it just makes me want to put my shoes on and, and hit some. Every night on the show that we do with Fabrice Centauri, your mixed doubles partner when you won it in 2005, you do keep saying to him, do you have your racket? Did you bring the shoe today? Is there an opportunity? And I'm not sure if he's a bit worried about facing you, but he's like, no, I will. I think I've got an early match. No, I'm going to come here. No, I will get there. But I am convinced that you will convince him to play before the end of this tournament. Oh, absolutely. Uh, once I decide to do something, there is no other way around it. I think... I believe that. <laughs> what do you mean? No, you're just a very driven, determined, impressive young woman. Uh, that's, a very nice, <laughs> that's a very nice way to put it. Good lob there. <laughs> you mentioned lob. I want to talk about drop shots. I want to bring in underarm serves. Drop shot, I don't think I've ever said it, Danny, so much in a tournament. Partly how the courts and the conditions for people listening who are far, far away from Paris. What are the conditions like for the players at this tournament? Well, first of all, I don't think we've ever seen so many drop shots, but also I don't think we've ever discussed it so many times. The, the We've said already that war drop shot well it's just because of the conditions they're super heavy so when you hit a shot like that the ball basically doesn't travel to your opponent it stays it doesn't bounce and also because on clay the players are normally much farther behind the baseline so you have all that space in front of the net that you don't really have to hit it that short and it's still going to be effective also it's a good change up if you're you know that your opponent doesn't have a good volleys that's how you bring them in. So there are so many benefits of hitting shot like that. And uh, yeah, we've seen quite a few of those. And there is nothing better than a really good drop shot. And there have been plenty of those. I would also say there is nothing worse 
than a really bad, ill-timed drop shot. And that's the risk you take. I mean, it's, it's decision-making, and you've given the reasons why there'd be more than ever. But at times, I do still feel that there are certain players who are copping out a little bit when they go for the drop shot. Well, to me personally, it was my best shot, but at the same time, kind of a panic shot. So whenever I didn't want to play the rally, the typical thing would be to surf out wide and try to hit a drop shot, just uh, just ba- basically not giving anyone a chance to stay in the rally. You had a panic on your face there yes. when you were describing it, like I, you were backing up. I Memories mean, come flooding back. <laughs> when I look at myself during the matches, I, I already knew before the surf, like, oh, it's coming. <laughs> it's just, it was one of those, it actually can become a really bad habit because... You know, you can trust the shot and you can hit it with your eyes closed, but that's when you start to overdo it. I feel like Novak sometimes does it, but he's aware of that. And he said it even himself that sometimes he overuses it. But still, you know, the the times that he's been affected with it. And even in my case, you know, sometimes, okay, it's it's a panic shot, but at, at the same time, it uh, helped me win many, many matches. And there's nothing worse than an ill-timed, badly executed underarm serve. Rafa Nadal <laughs> afterwards against Mackenzie McDonald said, no. Very bad. Good. Very bad. <laughs> Very bad, no? <laughs> Very bad for McDonald's. <laughs> yeah. McDonald. He probably thought this is great. He's standing so far back and, yeah. uh, and I'm losing and I'm just going to do it. And that's something else we've been talking about this underarm. Do you, are you a fan or not of the underarm well, serve? I'm a massive fan of the underarm serve. I, I don't like, oh, this, you're not showing respect. Listen, try whatever you can. It's another dimension to the game. I think we want as many variations as possible. I'm afraid I don't buy into this. It doesn't show respect. Listen, if you get it wrong, you're gifting your opponent the point. Thank you very much. He or she should be delighted about that. What do you reckon, Danny? Plus, we must not forget, it's not an easy shot to hit because basically you are trying to hit a drop shot without any speed coming towards you. So you can't use any of your the power of your opponent. So do it on the spot where you never, ever practice it. And as we said, if you miss it, it's like you just feel like you want to run off the court because <laughs> it is literally the most embarrassing thing out there. But also it comes to the fact that I think every sing- single player out there sometimes struggles with the surf so badly that it comes through your mind like, okay, well, I'm, I might just well <laughs> hit the underarm one because you're, you're just having such a bad day on the surf. You made a statement, Marcus, on Radio Roland Garros. I think it was around a point in the Denis Shapovalov match and you said that Hawkeye should, will come in on clay in the near future. Did I? <laughs> <laughs> the things we yes, say. I did. Yes, I did. I did. And I We're s- always listening. I did. I know. Big brother. <laughs> big sister. He's always, he's always listening. Younger sister. Younger sister. Big younger sister. Oh, I managed to offend both of you during this podcast. Uh, yes, I did say that. And I do stand by that. There have been two or three key moments during the first week. The Shapovalov match was one of them when the umpire came down. And I, I think it's a very tough decision to, to read these um, lines and all these different marks that are on the court. And I just feel that the technology is there. I know it might throw up a few other problems. There are those who say, oh, well, actually, Hawkeye, of course, it's not entirely accurate. And it might get confused because there are two uh, compressed marks at the same time. But I just think it would take the pressure off the umpire and the players would at least know through the technology what the situation is. Um, I don't know if you'd agree with that, Danny. 100% yes. Plus, uh, also, uh, what happens here in Paris or sometimes even in Rome, when you play against French or Italian player or in Spain, a Spanish one, you know, as a player, you just go and check the line and suddenly you, you, you hear yourself moving out of the court and just checking the mark. Happened to me once against Natalie that she was 7-0 in the third on center court and I literally gave her the point. 
because I went to check the mark. I saw it was out, but I just did not have the guts anymore to ask for the Empire to come and check it out because they were already like, you know, throwing uh, tomatoes at me. <laughs> so, you know, the, the Hawkeye would take away the pressure from the Empires, but from the players as well that, you know, it's it's just a little bit unfair sometimes when you play against, you know, whoever is the favorite in, in that country. And in 21st century, with all the technology we've got, I mean, and like you said, sometimes as a player... Now, you know, respecting all the linesmen and uh, linesmen and the empires, 99% of the time you can tell as a player because we've, you know, we've played and spent so much time on that court that if you see like Novak in Rome, when they are going crazy, you just know they are right. And, uh, and you know... He was both times, yes. actually. He was proved right. Yeah, it's like when you see the players like really complaining is because you know like there's no way that um, the the empire is is correct so it would be nice to take that away from our game do you think they will bring it in and sooner rather than later i think so and i would hope so and i think more we talk about it and more the players actually keep mentioning it and you know keep pointing out moments like in rome against novak because that was just so unfair is anyone here in favour of going from five sets to three sets for the men at Grand Slams? We saw Gustino, who was driven to the edge and over it, and he beat Corentin Mute. What was his reward? Diego Schwartzman. And he, he barely he barely won a game of that. It was very difficult to recover. Danny, where are you on where are you on that? Uh, I don't like too many changes in our game. I think that's one of the things why tennis is so special because of all the history and uh, all the rules that uh, they've been placed there. And, you know, in the times that we live in, everyone's rushing to somewhere, wants to get things done quickly and do other billion other things. No, no, no. I, I love the way it is. And that's what makes the Grand Slam so special that it really, at the end of the tournament, whoever wins, it is not only the best player, but also the fittest. Well, I'm going to disagree with you there. I think for the first three rounds, the men should play best of three. A uh, couple of reasons for that. A lot of the early matches, particularly with the top guys involved, are very one-sided and they're a little bit of a non-event. Equally, if you made it best of three, there is perhaps more of a chance for an upset. You know, Rafa would be a little more vulnerable in the early stages at Roland Garros if it was best of three. Plus, it would allow the big guns, assuming they get through to stay as fit as possible and then to be in a better position to give us a feast of tennis as you get to the round of 16. Honestly, I feel like that's making it for the players even tougher because how do you go with the training? Are you preparing yourself to be out there for five hours or for three hours? Because it's a completely different preparation taking those two, three weeks leading up to Paris. You have to do then so much more explosive stuff, completely different weight training, completely mentally totally different setup going into a match like that. So, I've, you know, it will be obviously very interesting to hear what Rafa, Roger, or Novak has to say about it. But mentally, and knowing how players are, you know, we like our routines, we like to know what to expect from the tournament. And suddenly you have to make all these changes. Just, just looking purely from the training and preparation point of view, it would just mess things up. But equally, uh, you know, tennis, like all sports, is trying to make sure it stays relevant, particularly to a younger audience, and they're looking for matches to be a little quicker and particularly you know no disrespect to those who've played Rafa and Novak so far but those haven't really been matches Danny they have been foregone conclusions from the word go which is why I'd be in favour of reducing them I, interesting whether Novak and Rafa would agree with that perhaps not because it, it would just offer the opportunity if the underdog was inspired to win two out of three so they probably wouldn't want to change it but in the long run it, it must surely help them because it would keep them you know with a bit more 
strength and, and energy for the big matches w that will surely come in the second week. Well, two things here. Like you said, uh, playing best of three, it just uh, helps the um, outsiders have a better chance against the the champions. So I think that would be unfair to them. And second thing, the young generation wanting things to, to be done faster, well, that's just too bad. Go on TikTok, go on Instagram. Uh, and go on Twitch. We know Twitch. what Twitch is. is. Danny and I learned what Twitch was. <laughs> and yesterday. if you want Twitch, that's an unfortunate <laughs> facial feature, isn't it? <laughs> that's what it's we thought. something that Gail Morfis and Alina Svitolina. <laughs> it's where? What is it? It's a. It. What is it? So you you literally watching someone else playing video games. So okay, if if that's what you want in your life, go and do that. But don't take away the beauty and the class from our sport. Yeah, but we we don't want to completely turn the youngsters' backs on the sport. Well, I think we? this is helping them to kind of find the balance in life and, you know, see that the, the best things are really worth waiting and uh, for and, uh, and watching these amazing athletes. And I there. would agree with that because if you just switch to cricket for a moment and for me, there, I know, Danny, you're probably not... Are you a big cricket fan? You're probably not. Uh, after coming 20 years to, to Australia, I kind of tried to <laughs> understand a little bit more. Can you tell us about the googly? you know what a googly is? Oh, God, I'll We just dealt with Twitch. Don't start on Google. I mean, it's Saturday morning. The point I was going to make, actually, there is nothing better than a really good test match. And you're quite right in that regard. Okay, you need the patience, but it can bubble up to something great. And I still wish at Masters level the finals were all best of five sets. And certainly, I'm not saying you should have best of three in the first three rounds. And certainly from the round of 16 onwards, it should be a five-set match. But I think it's worth... I think the conversation could be had. Could be continued. Well, let's dig into this a little bit more because um, back in the UK, Marcus, you front Amazon's UK Prime coverage of tennis. Danny, you're a very important part of that coverage. Here, Marcus, you're working Radio Roland Garris. Danny, you're doing lots of things, but we're working together on live at RG, the, the nightly television show. How do you see tennis as a package for the fans? Do you like it? What can be done? Do we need headsets? Do we need more coaching? Do we need more dry ice like you have at the Tour Finals? Walk on music when the players come out. Do we need to change the sets? Is it a, is it a no from you, Danny? Or can you see ways that we can change it for possibly a younger audience? I think I'm a really old school here, but I don't like changes. I mean, look at those athletes we've got out there. What do you need to change about Roger, Rafa, Novak, uh, Serena and everyone else? Else. I mean, look at those champions. Look the fact we've got live, live sport, live tennis, being such a global sport and being able to pull this all together. That's already unbelievable fact. And sometimes, again, we go back to, you know, this world moving too fast and we want more things. Ah, no, I think everything's fine just the way it is and we better appreciate it and enjoy it. Well, I, I think there's room for some manoeuvring. I liked during the Battle of the Brits in particular, the matches that they had at the National Tennis Centre in Roehampton during the summer and we had the headphones and we heard the players talking to the commentators. I thought that was a fantastic innovation. I know that that was only quotes are friendly and it could become awkward and a little bit fake in the middle of a Grand Slam and I suspect you wouldn't be too thrilled in the middle of one of your big matches against Martina Hingis to suddenly have some idiot like me asking you a banal <laughs> question about what was going on but anything that can bring the fans closer to the sport give them more understanding of it, I think has to be a good thing. What I do like here in Paris particularly is how the, the players stay on the court uh, after the match and have that kind of a deeper interview, not just about you know how you felt out there. So I think that's been a nice change. One thing I would do, though, to throw away is the coach on court. 
I think we had that discussion with Tim Hanman a couple of weeks ago um, in our Amazon studio that, uh, you know, one of the beauties of tennis is that you have to figure out things by yourself out there. And one of the things I am so grateful for when I retired that tennis has given me that you kind of become independent and you are able to make these big decisions by yourself. But then when you have, you know, players seeing throughout the entire match being coached by their coach first of all it's not good for them personally second of all to me it's cheating and third of all it's just you know the coach is making the players so independent on them so I, it's one thing that i really think it's unnecessary now you see i'm gonna have to disagree with you again here <laughs> oh, do, do you agree when you do the amazon coverage <laughs> at all or is it yeah, very they, similar to this normally get on okay but things are going horribly wrong here <laughs> in the city of love <laughs> Um, no, I think that if a player is struggling and they have their coach there in a position to offer them some advice that might turn the match around and make it a better spectacle for all the spectators as well, then why not? In every other sport, even a golfer has his or her caddy to offer advice. But that's in why football. our sport is so special, that players do have to figure it out there themselves. But when they don't, and they lose one and love in 47 minutes, we all look at each other and go, well, that was a waste of time. And maybe if they'd been offered some sort of inspiration by the coach, it might have been different. It might not have been. Uh, 99% it might not have been because honestly if you lose one in love well that's just too bad and go and do figure it out in the practice one of the things I appreciated the most when I started to work with Nigel Sears who we all, all three of us know very well is Danny we do all the work um, that we need to on the practice court but out there you're by yourself and go and figure it out and if they had it on the ATP tour, how many men do you think? Can you imagine Roger Federer bringing no his one. coach on court? Can you imagine no Novak Djokovic it bringing Marion Vider on court? It just, I, I couldn't see them but, taking but it up. But you have the choice. Okay, you don't have to, but you could have the choice. And some players might like that. Maybe, probably, listen, Danny knows better than me. And maybe the vast majority would say no. But I like the option of that happening. And I think it would be really instructive for youngsters watching on TV to be able to hear the sorts of things a top coach says to a player and vice versa, I think that could be really enlightening. Okay, I do agree uh, with you that it would help some players, for sure, for the tennis. But what happens then in their life afterward? They're going to call that guy, you know, every single time they have to make, because that's where, that's where the problem is. Then it's really f hard to find that balance between knowing there is help and not overusing it too much. When you look at Roger Federer, he never ever hardly looks at someone in his box and you have the feeling when he's going to retire with tennis, he can be CEO of any company, of anything he's going to try to do. He's, he's going to be unbelievably successful because you see it on the court. Now, if I see a player that's always after every single point looking up at the coach, you just wonder like, hmm, you know, how things are, are going to be for him or her uh, when they retire. So I think it's just such a beautiful preparation for their personal life. There are just times when I... I, I did try to agree here. No, I know. <laughs> I listen, after half an hour. He's not letting it go. <laughs> I, I'm not letting it go. I, 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 think you, I think you talk a lot of sense, but there are just times. Actually, let's give credit to Caroline Garcia because she turned it around by herself yesterday. Although I will throw in, I'm not saying it happened with Caroline Garcia. We know, Danny, that on a lot of occasions, on-court coaching is going on. And oh, so yeah, if it's course. surreptitiously going on, why don't we just let it be official? And even if it's just a little wink or somebody, you know, the coach waving their arm or whatever it is to suggest a different tactic, you know, rather than this, oh, well, it's not really happening. Yes, it is happening. Okay, allow it to happen. And it doesn't have to be a long conversation necessarily. It could just be a few hand signals like doubles players employ to each other. And uh, I just think, I mean, Garcia worked it out, but sometimes 
you'll know it can be such a lonely, horrible place on a court when everything's going wrong. Occasionally, I think you want to just phone a friend, as it were. <laughs> and even worse so when, you know, you're trying to figure out things on your own out there and you know that on the other side of the court there is the conversation going on throughout the entire match that this is where players with not really having English as their first language uh, benefit from it big time. I tried to say it to the Empire many, many times because I could understand the coach, what he was... Uh, sometimes it was actually useful because <laughs> you can almost hear what they're trying to tell the <laughs> the uh, tell the player or you kind of figure out this, uh, the hand signs because what happens on the women's tour a lot of the time is right before the serve they just look at the code and he's pointing out you know where they're supposed to serve so if you figure it out then it's actually kind of easy and you go like oh thank which you which is good Danny but it does mean that if we're not going to have on-court coaching then the authorities really do need to stamp yes. down on it as I know Wimbledon are intending to do again yeah. next year 100% I would love all of that to to go away because it's just so unfair now, this could almost be a podcast in itself. And Marcus, I don't know if you've listened to Danny's podcast, The Real DNA, and I don't know if she has asked you or will ask you to be a guest on that podcast. Probably not. Not, not after this. After this last 20 minutes. No chance. If this was the audition, might not happen. It might be season six or seven when we get there. But why, Danny, why did you decide to do a podcast? Uh, well, it was a thing that I had on my mind for, for a long time. Ever since I started to do this, the, the thing I enjoyed the most is actually exactly having chats like this, whether you know it's with you guys or with, uh, with the players. And uh, just because I never really had time for it, because as we all three know how, how busy these days uh, working for TV can be, uh, just uh, was always pushing it away. And then the lockdown came. And I was like, right, now now is the opportunity to do that. It wasn't really easy because I could never be with uh, my guests in person. So it was and not in vision, really. So that was hard to get those emotions out. But uh, yeah, I've been really enjoying it. I had some interesting conversations. And uh, maybe this is the way to ask you, both of you, to, to come and be my guests at some point. Talk to my agent. <laughs> <laughs> I knew he was going to say that. Tell us a few of the people you've had on the podcast. And who's been, who would be your dream guest? No, not Marcus. Hello. No, stop it. <laughs> well, I have I will, to talk I to, <laughs> I, I have to talk to your agent, right? Yeah, he'll say yes in this instance. <laughs> he's too, I think he's too expensive. But that is a very good question. Who would be my, oh, wow. We should say it's not just the real day. It's not just tennis. It's all different people and they don't have to be sports people either. You've really covered a wide range of people. Maybe there's people you're interested in, people who are famous in their in their respective areas. But there's been a wide range so far. So. Yeah, I have to say uh, everyone I invited, it's people I respect. Uh, had some incredible conversation where I learned so much for myself so much uh, from from them. And uh, like you say, it was not only sports, but uh, different uh, Different people. Ah, wow, this is a really deep one. Well, I know it's 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 a crazy aim, but um, someone like Dalai Lama or Pope Francesco. Wow, you've gone high, haven't you? I know. Well, you said uh, you, anyone. You started at Marcus. I've got his number. Let's just see if he fancies it. <laughs> You did actually. One, you hosted a twenty-minute segment on your own, and you were talking about a number of things. And you were talking about traveling. And was it once you turned up for a train an hour early because you're so used to getting to airports? And when you get to airports, you have to, you know, it's one, two, three hours. And for the train, you can literally sort of thirty seconds and jump on. But didn't you get something like an hour early? <laughs> yeah, and everyone tried to tell me like, Danny, this is train. You don't. Really, I'm like, no, no, no. Come on, you know, knowing my airport life, like, the, and you know how tennis players like. Literally, we can tell you exactly where the the 
lounge of any airport in the world <laughs> and what the connections are, how you're going to get to Australia, the fastest route. Um, but first time on train, interesting. And everyone is like, you're leaving way too early for the train. So, And, you know, just like Marcus pointed out a couple of minutes ago, I have to have it my way. So surely <laughs> enough, I, I was there um, stepping around like an hour early. I was like, how... Sounds like going on holiday with my mother-in-law, who has to be everywhere three hours before you need to be. <laughs> Did you ever work out how many miles you've flown or how many flights you've taken? It must be a ridiculous amount. Yeah, I wish, uh, I wish I would have started right from the start to actually collect all the miles and also how many Ks we do walking around the airports mm. from going from one gate to oh, another. That would have been an interesting number. But as far as miles go, uh, well... Doing the full uh, season, it was at, re at least 100,000 every year. And I remember perhaps one of the most, well, standout flights that you had was the time you won. You were telling this a few weeks ago. Do you remember you won a doubles title, but you had to catch <laughs> a flight and you didn't even have time to go and get changed? <laughs> That was actually during the clay court season. We just finished our fi doubles final with Aisugi Yama in Rome. Played quite late. And Sugi knew that I was trying to make this flight desperately to go home at least for 24 hours before coming to Paris. But the flight was like at 7 p.m. And literally at 5, you are still on the court. That was like my shortest speech ever <laughs> during the ceremony. I was like, yeah, well done. We are happy. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, literally just gave the trophy to... Uh, Sugi and ran in my steel match outfit with the dirty clay court shoes literally to the airport they knew they were waiting for me and kind of sat down still breathing heavily uh, on the plane next to the guy who was looking at me like mm, okay you know because I didn't have time to change or shower so it was thankfully it was a short flight back to Vienna. So. Any jet lag tips from either of you? Running car, any 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 cardio as soon as you get there. Literally, just uh, throwing the ba bags um, in the room and any any cardio activity for 40, 45 minutes. It's uh, it's harder to do than than set, but it's it's kind of what helps you the quickest to adjust to whatever part of the world you're in, and also try to follow the the eating habits. So you know, even if you don't feel like in the morning having breakfast, really forcing yourself to do that to to be to to get that rhythm as well. Yeah, I would say do everything that I don't do, because when I get on a flight, I, I, I like flying, and especially if you're lucky enough to go up the front of the plane, so, you know, glass of uh, complimentary champagne, sir, yeah, why not? Uh, glass of red with your deal, it's yes, why not? It's a different world, isn't then, it? It's a different world. I, this doesn't happen very often, but if you get up the front, and then, you know, I watch a couple of films. I do remember the BBC years ago sent me to the Australian Open, and uh, unfortunately, they got the day wrong, so I flew a day later than I should have done. And I arrived in Melbourne and had to go straight to the tennis. And Greg Rosetsky was playing Boris Becker in the first round, which was a pretty decent matchup. And I fell asleep in the booth. But there was no, there was no way out of that because literally we, we landed. Were you commentating? Yes. Well, I, not at that stage where I fell asleep. <laughs> imagine, there were two of us. Imagine when you have to play a match feeling like that. Yeah, I mean, that, that would be tough. I once uh, was, I don't know, I can't remember which year, played Fed Cup uh, at home, winter minus 20. Sunday night flew to Pattaya, play back-to-back -back six matches. Sunday night of the after finals, jumped on the plane to Dubai, didn't sleep all night, arrived 7 a.m., had to play a night session, and the same feeling. I almost, so I was showing my coach, like, just let's, let's get me out of here. I, I somehow won 7-6 in the third. 
Uh, but the way to to be able to do that was as soon as I arrived, like 7 a.m. Um, in Dubai, after no sleep at all, I went straight to the gym for like one hour run just to keep your mind and body going because otherwise there is no way I would have made it to yeah, the court. But this, this is the lady who was a youngster between, the, and she told me this, between the ages of 7 and 14, <laughs> your daily schedule. And it wasn't your parents pushing you. It was you pushing them every day. It was up at half six, train for a, an hour and a half before school, something like that. You were fitting in piano lessons during the afternoon you were also a very good straight a student so you were doing your homework till about midnight and then you were up at 6 30 again the next morning i mean this is it's exhausting yeah that sounds exhausting that was fun <laughs> okay that's 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 fun, fun for some. <laughs> let me ask you and i want to bring it back to the tennis but i want to ask you what's the best advice you've both been given and danny it might be for you in the media sense it might be as a player marcus i imagine it won't be in the playing sense but it might be in the media sense but someone that said something to you well in the playing sense it was someone said stop playing basically because i wasn't very good and you took that advice i did take that advice Excellent. i used to have these ridiculous matches with this friend of mine rob palmer who's a football commentator but he's a dreadful cheat on a tennis court and when we were working up in Liverpool we used to go onto the grass courts they had in Birkenhead really great public grass courts and we play for hour after hour he moonball me non-stop on one famous occasion this lovely young local lad came over on his bike and said could he umpire the match and about 10 minutes later he left shell-shocked at the <laughs> language and the cheating that was going on between the two of us in terms purely of broadcasting I always say this and it's probably similar in a way for for Danny and playing but if you fail to prepare then you must prepare to fail and that's always been my motto the more you get ready for something the better you feel about yourself the more confident you are inevitably the better you'll do it yeah, that is so true. And that goes for, I think, every department of our life. So that's one I've been following for all my life. The other one, uh, well, there are two uh, that really stood up uh, for me when I was growing up. That One is from my grandmother, who was my first tennis coach. And uh, she always told me, treat every single opponent with the same respect, whether you're playing against the number one in the world or with a club member. Because, you know, there is always lesson to be learned whether you win six love, six love, whether you lose six love, six love, that, you know, if there is a person on the other side of the court, give them the appreciation that you have that opportunity to play what you love to do. And that wouldn't be possible if there was not so, someone on the other side of the court. Now, we're going to bring it to a close a little bit, Tennis, because Marcus has it written into his radio contract that he needs to have a little lie down before he goes <laughs> on air to make sure he is fully prepared. So I, I don't want to dip into your rest time uh, pre-radio. Are, are the bowl of cherries here yet? The cherries have arrived. I did bring them personally. Oh, <laughs> no one can feed you the cherries because of the times we're in, so you will have to do that part yourself. That's annoying. <laughs> and <actually>. chew <laughs> them as well. Yeah, you have to do everything yourself give, once the cherries no, I'll arrive. I'll give you the pips back later. But then. they are here. <laughs> but let me ask you, and I don't want any cheating in terms of cherries, Changing. Who did you have to win this title, these titles at the start of the tournament and no changing in case your person is no longer here? Novak Simona. Novak Simona. Oh, we did agree on something. <laughs> this is like a happy ending. And let me ask you, I, there's just a couple of the tennis storylines in there. Stan Vavrinka. We had penciled him in, we'd inked him in to face Dominic Team in the fourth round. He loses to Hugo Gaston. The fans were out there. This wild card Marcus into the tournament. I mean, that is one of the headlines as we record this on Saturday from week one. It was amazing. Funnily enough, um, my son, Luca, three or four years ago, met Hugo Gaston. He was over 
competing at whatever age group he would have been for France. And he was such a friendly, bouncy guy. But he's always gone under the radar. The French haven't really, I don't think, earmarked him for great things. And he's something like 239 in the world. The two times he played here as a junior, he lost in the first round. So it's quite extraordinary, Danny. And I know he's had a relatively easy draw up until playing Stan and we still don't quite know how fit Stan is but it's just unbelievable that he's almost come from nowhere to be the last Frenchman standing at Roland Garros 2020. Yeah definitely such a cool story and it just shows sometimes it's good to be in that position that you're not the favorite of your federation and you have to work for things uh, in a more difficult way and really fight for the attention and that's what he's done here he's just proven everyone wrong and he's now the guy in the spotlight. Is there anything to separate Rafa Nadal and Dominic team at the moment we know they're both in the same part of the draw but what is there one above the other from what you've seen to this point Danny? I think the only difference between those two is that Dominic has just played uh, you know more tennis the last few few months and I think uh, when it comes down to the crucial points that's what we always talk about that uh, those things matter because suddenly that confidence you know being in that situation over the last couple of weeks kicks in and that might be the only difference. Yeah there's a growing aura about him and of course he's come here this time as a Grand Slam champion twice a finalist but I think now he really believes that he can do it because he has done it in New York and I think that makes him even more dangerous. Equally, some people were, if not writing Rafa off, certainly suggesting that this would be the, the toughest year he would experience on the clay and I think that makes him even more dangerous as a result. And Novak Djokovic, he's in the top half of the draw. He didn't get team, he didn't get Nadal. Of course, there are other threats. He is just going about his business. He has records in his sights. He wants those records. He wants those titles. Yeah, absolutely so. And uh, Novak is uh, such a goal-driven uh, personality and anything you know he can break as far as uh, history records go, he's, he's right on it. And uh, as you said, Gigi, he's just uh, sailing through the tournament quietly and... Uh, to me, he's just a little bit about everyone else as far as the movement, the confidence. And it's nice to see him, how much he's enjoying the time uh, here from his Instagram post and, and really being in a good place outside the court as well. Yeah, I think the schedule worked for him after what happened in New York. I think it was a huge benefit that there was the Rome Masters immediately afterwards and he got back on track, did what he had to do there. And now he's got another Grand Slam so soon after the default. I can't see anybody stopping him from getting to the final. And then it's just a case of what happens against either Rafa or team. And now I've said that, of course, they'll all get knocked out in the round of 16. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for being here. You guys did agree towards the end, which was we wonderful. Did. You can see yeah, a lot more there. agreeing and disagreeing on the Amazon UK coverage. <laughs> Marcus has to go and find his cherries and have a little lie down. And we go back to work. We're going to go back to work while Marcus Quite is right. having his lie down. If, and you can Don't listen, speak too loudly. You can listen to Danny's podcast while you're having a lie down. You can okay. find that in all the... As long as she invites me on eventually as a guest <laughs> after the Pope and the Dalai Lama. It was all going so it's, well. It's right there. <laughs> it was all going so well. Now, now quit while you're ahead, Marcus, but you can get that podcast in all the usual places we're going to go our separate ways don't forget you can listen to the concluding week of Roland Garros via ATP Tennis Radio as we rebroadcast Radio Roland Garros and next week Chris Bowers and special guest will be with you to round up events in Paris keep in touch with us via our social media channels and if you have enjoyed listening to the podcast then you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts Google Podcasts Spotify or TuneIn I don't think Twitch has got anything to do with podcasts but we're still Danny and I are still learning about it thank you for your company until next time enjoy the tennis if you like this podcast 
please search the iTunes store for ATP Tennis Radio to leave a review. review.